0: Thank you, Brother Warner, for bringing peace into our hearts through your beautiful music, holy music. We' we'll encourage you on this Sabbath day to enjoy this special time to reflect and relax, to meditate on God's word. I know there are many out there that are anxious to return to a physical worship experience with each other. We want to encourage you that we are processing all of the cross currents of uh, decision making in regard to that. We do want to be safe and wise, and so we are moving patiently forward to uh, a moment when at least a limited number could be here. We don't know exactly when that will be. It will not be next Sabbath, so please don't plan for next Sabbath and we will try to be well in advance with our communication when we think that time is near. In the meantime, keep praying that God will make this moment, advance his kingdom, and let's have the spirit of Jesus as we look out for each other and go wisely without fear in our society on errands for God. Let's pray. Father, our life and our lives, are really yours. And this morning, this afternoon, as we open the Word, we want them to be shaped and molded by your Spirit. So I'm praying, Lord, that you would guide this encounter in the Word. May our hearts be subject to the impress of your Spirit, especially, Lord, mine. Speak to me, speak through me, set a watch before my lips. But I pray, Lord, for all those that will hear, whether in the live moment, or whether in a recorded session. Please set a watch before my lips. Please give holy boldness. As Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel, Lord, let it be known that you are God and that I have done these things at your command. So thank you that we have you. Guide us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. If there's a bad thing that can happen to God's people is that they quit moving forward. One of the worst things that can happen is that we lose a sense of God's imminent presence and stop taking risk and don't achieve in His name. One of the nights when Elder John Bradshaw was sharing during Hope Awakens, he went back to a tragic moment in Australian history when the Tasman Bridge fell in. It was a powerful illustration of how even when Frank and Sylvia Manley, whose car skidded to the edge of the bridge with the front wheels hanging over, looking down the 100 plus feet into water that was over 100 feet deep, as Frank pulled himself out of the car and hung on to the headrest, swung his feet around so that he would be on terra firma, on solid ground. He went back and tried to wave people down, how some even swerved around him and drove off the end of the bridge. Fortunately, he was able to stop a busload of people. You can watch it, hear the testimonies on YouTube. But there's a part of the illustration that I would like to uncover a little bit more of. Going all the way back to 1975, the Illawarra is the freighter down on the Tasman River. It's approaching the bridge, the Tasman Bridge, and as it comes up to the bridge, the captain is distracted. Now, there are several large spans on the bridge, and the central span has the widest channel for the Illawarra to pass through. She's loaded with freight, and this is a river that's emptying into an ocean port, so there's tidal currents in the river. And the captain makes at least two or three fatal mistakes. Number one, he's not paying attention. Number two, he slows the speed of the vessel to almost a crawl. I believe maybe three knots. The problem is that the tide coming in has six knots of movement on it. What it means is is that he loses control of the ship, and the currents move him into one of the, the pillars holding up the deck of the bridge some 100 feet above. A large span falls in on the boat. The boat capsizes and sinks rather quickly. All of, it could have been, all of it could have been avoided if he would have paid attention and kept up his speed. Some of you like to go canoeing. And of course, in Michigan, we have some option on some actually swift-moving water. What people learn the hard way about canoeing in swift water is that if your canoe is not moving faster than the current, then the only place you're going to go, unless you know some special strokes for the boat, the only place you're gonna go is where the current takes you. Now, I wanna start this message acknowledging that inside much of Protestantism, yea, even Adventism, the church has been moving with the current settled in, enjoying a measure of ease, not really contradicting, not really dealing with the cross currents of society that are self-destructive. And the church finds itself floating down the river of society. Unfortunately, the ills around it have invaded it We're in a moment in time where I I must remind us that if we are not going to be sucked into the whirlpools of destruction, if we're actually going to avoid the pilasters that are holding up the structures around us, if we're gonna make it out into the open ocean and we're gonna cross over to the other side, we're actually going to have to keep our momentum up. We're gonna have to know where we're going. We're gonna have to steam ahead or else we're gonna be swept along by the currents. This morning, as I'm reflecting on the experience of God's people, the salvation history of of the institution of the church in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, in the New Testament, one of the most dangerous times for God's church is when conquest comes to an end and the love of pleasure and relaxation takes over. And there is this very subtle amalgamation. There is this very subtle transformation to where the unique nature of the church holy living the collective power to affect the conscience of society disappears because the church is becoming like the world yes we see god liberating israel from egypt and we see the amazing intervention of god to cross the red sea to provide water out of a rock food every day to see god protecting by a cloud of the burning desert sun and a pillar of fire at night from the desert chill We see God turning over leadership, not necessarily his spot, of course, but from Moses, the visible human representation, to Joshua. And the book of Joshua describes a commitment of leadership and the membership of the nation Israel that actually fulfills God's plan. But we come to the death of Joshua, and we see that the societal epitaph The words written on the death of the corporate Christian experience or the corporate experience of Israel is that only those that were alive during the days of Joshua faithfully fulfilled and conquest went forward, but a generation came on for which ease and enjoyment and pleasure-seeking was the rule of the day. And there we enter into the phase of the judges. I want us to stop for a moment and think about the experience of God's church, the movement of the Reformation, which seems to have almost come to a complete stop. It's gone so far as that those great doctrines, important doctrines about how salvation works and whether you go through a man or go straight to God, pivotal doctrines about whether or not authority is in the Bible or authority is in the tradition of the church, absolutely in- instrumental components about the freedom of the soul over which people were willing to die to put the Bible in the common language of man and to proclaim God's truth to the faggot, to the stake some in torture chambers some in exile we see god's church marching on mightily transforming societies lifting up whole nations even economically as the protestant work ethic and the internal engine of moral purpose takes over in a society but now we've come to a place where a Babylonian confusion has settled down as we've abandoned a belief in the Bible and we've enjoyed the luxury and the comforts of a modern age. We see America progressing through a, a second world war, ramping up its efficiency and in industry, and when the war's over, one of the unscathed, except for the loss of life, which of course is the greatest gift that can be given, but not, not bombarded, not burned out, And thus all of that economic energy has to turn somewhere else and America enters into an age of consumerism and the church is not far behind. What the worst thing can happen to a church is is that it can lose sight of where it's heading, slow its progress, and simply be moved by the currents of society. Nothing can be worse for God's people. When we read the story of David... In 2 Samuel chapter 11, the Bible's very clear that the time came when the kings and their generals went out to war, but David stayed home. There would be no springtime conquest for him in leading the people of God. And the second verse of chapter 11 says, he went up on his house in the evening of the day and saw something he shouldn't have seen. And thus we see the devil conquering a man who had been known for his fidelity to God. When our church stops moving forward, when convenience takes the place of sacrifice, when comfort takes the place of commitment, when we stop prayerfully petitioning God to be with us as we go forward in spiritual conquest, taking prisoners of hope, you can be certain that what's going to follow is spiritual declension and decay. What happened in the judges is happening in American and Western society. It's happening in my dear church. And now God is looking for those that will stand up in his name, beautified by a character, not strident, not animated with anger, but stand up in the name of God, dependent on prayer, led by the Spirit. God is looking for people, families, parents, churches, pastors, teachers. And he's calling them to come back to the commitments that bring his care, his protection, his provision. After the settlement in Canaan, The author of Patriarchs and Prophets writes, the tribes made no vigorous effort to complete the conquest of the land. Satisfied with the territory already gained, their zeal soon flagged, and the war was discontinued. When Israel was strong, they put the Canaanites to tribute, but they did not utterly drive them out. It's interesting when reading the warning of God through Moses in Exodus 23, that there was to be no association with the Canaanites. We learned in one of the previous messages in my series, Confidence in Crisis, that we are only to associate with those that don't honor God when we know our presence will do them some marked spiritual good. Unfortunately, we're sitting at the same shrines. We're bowing down at the same idols. We're feasting at the same tables that the world is feasting at. And consequently, God's church finds itself in retreat. Yes, it even finds itself in some moments and times nearly defeated. As they were in the days of Saul, people hiding, as it were, in the rocks and the caves, unwilling to declare their covers, their colors, afraid to come out and make conquest for God. But this morning, friends, I'm here to tell you: God is still looking for mighty men and women, women of valor. Men and women who have not bowed the knee to Baal, men and women that are willing to follow him in the reconstruction of faith and the confidence. Of his people. Yes, in the days of Judges, they had come to love ease and self indulgence. Regardless of their high destiny, she writes, they chose the course of ease and self indulgence and let slip their opportunities for completing the conquest of the lands. Take your Bibles and open up to the book of Psalms, Psalm 106. I want to read verses 34 to 43. Psalm 106, reading verses 34 to 43. The psalmist, not David in this case, is rehearsing the experience of the nation of Israel, taking us all the way through the experience of Moses in verse 32. We come up to verses 33 and onward. I'll begin with verse 34. And we hear the psalmist telling the story of the life of those that followed Moses, Joshua, the elders, and the judges that came behind. They did not destroy, verse 34, the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them. But were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. They served their idols, which were a snare to them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils. And they shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. They were defiled with their own works and went a-whoring after other inventions." Therefore was the wrath of the Lord kindled against these people, insomuch his people, insomuch that he abhorred his own inheritance. Yes, friends, we've come through a period of time when the sacrifices of those that have come before us almost appear to be too large for us to carry the burden into the present age. Years ago, when HMS Richard's was socializing with some of his friends. I'm not sure if it was a camp out or what kind of gathering it was. He was sitting around talking about how the gospel ought to be proclaimed on radio, a relatively unused technology for many good things. And finally, one of his friends got tired of hearing. He said, Harold, you don't really believe this. He said, oh, yes, I do. No, you don't believe it because if you believed it, it would happen. It wasn't long later that at some of the evangelistic meetings that sometimes went on for months... God's people were appealed to, and they brought in their jewelry and their their gold and their silver, and they collected what they could in times of hardship, and eventually the flagship media ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church was born. It was called the Voice of Prophecy. Elder Richards would go on to say, we ought not to be buying time on radio stations. We ought to be buying the radio stations themselves. And probably in those years following the rebuild of the world after World War II, American Adventism could have conquered and been the conquering force on the airwaves. I'm praising the Lord today for Strong Tower Radio and others that have decided that in faith we ought to be talking 24-7 to as many people as will listen. Yes, friends, when God's people quit moving forward, life gets easy for a while, and then it gets very hard. Welcome to the time of the judges. They intermingled with the Canaanites, Ellen White says. They actually married, and idolatry spread like the plague throughout the land, page 544. Until the generation that had received instruction from Joshua became extinct, idolatry made little headway. But the parents, listen, parents, the parents had prepared the way for the apostasy of their children. I'm not sure a more sober line could be written. Parents preparing the way for apostasy, how do you do it? Give your children everything they want. Teach them nothing about work and sacrifice. Give them no place in the advancement of God's cause, which can be hard to do if God's church isn't taking any steps forward, isn't putting their arms around any decisions of faith. Yes, we can be in an arena where we actually make our children more the citizens of this age than we do the idea that they are citizens of a better country even a heavenly one. God has called us to actually school our children to embrace the challenges that come in the name of God, and they start in the home. They start by doing the little duties in the home. They start by carrying heavier responsibilities in other places. It starts with religious education and instruction, the experience of what goes on in the home, the worship in the home, the absence of other things in the home. She goes on to talk about restrictions. This is what she says. The disregard of the Lord's restrictions on the part of those who came in possession of Canaan, sowed the seeds of evil that continued to bring forth bitter fruits for many generations. I'm so thankful for every time my mother told me no. I'm so thankful for every time my father said, we're not doing that. Last night I was sitting in my own little living room visiting with my wife and two of my children, the younger two, and after we sang some songs and and read a little bit to inspire us, we took some time to praise the Lord. It's our habit on Friday evening. We have a devotional thought, and then we take some time to praise the Lord. What's He done for us this week? Who is He? How worthy is He of of our praise? And I wanna tell you, the moment I'm about to describe is one that brings me great joy as a parent, but I need you to know all the chapters that preceded. it. I'm the father of three boys and one girl. The boys are all emancipated, It was nice to have the youngest one with me last night. My daughter is still in my home. It's a wonderful pleasure to have her back from the mission field. And last night at the end of our worship, we're sitting there praising the Lord and my son says something that uh, brings great joy to my heart and I hope someday his kids will tell him the same thing. He's not married yet, but when that time comes and he's raising his little boys and girls to become soldiers of Christ, men of God, he said, I'm thankful for how I was raised. Now that's important to me because I'm his dad. It's also important to me because so many times raising my children, I had to declare to them my allegiance was to God first and that the rules of our home and the protections of of our little family were for their well-being. And from the journey of adolescence to full spiritual mature adulthood, there are a lot of moments when parents need to be the ones that are proclaiming the restrictions. Don't dump it on the teacher. Don't leave it for the church. That little church in your home is to have two pastors that are leading it, mom and dad, dad and mom. And when those kids in their adolescence and their lack of understanding decide that this is the way to go, besides so and so is letting their, my friend go this way, and so-and-so's letting their children go this way, it doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. There are generations during the days of the judges that paved the way, they prepared the way for apostasy in their children, and the absence of restriction turned out to be the seeds that were sowed generation after generation. Now, I know there's a, there, there have been generations in this church that think legalism has been running rife, and be it I'm only 56 years old and I wasn't raised in the church, so when I came as a 14-year-old, coming out of the darkness of the world into the light of Christ, my heart blossomed like a flower with the beauty that I found in my little Peoria church there on North Knoxville Avenue. But I know for some that went to our institutions as children, they felt there was a lack of love and too many restrictions. And the mantra of their life, I believe for many of them, born in rebellion was the same that was echoing throughout society, question authority. I'm here to tell you today the problem with the roots of rebellion is that there is some question in the mind of Ellen White whether or not true rebellion can ever be healed. Praise God, I believe it can, but it's awfully hard to believe in the arrogance of opinion and attitude that you've got it all figured out because humility is what leads to wisdom. For all of those For all of those children who've gotten good at articulating the mistakes of their parents, they ought to stop because someday if they're blessed, they're going to have the privilege of trying to shape a little life that grows into an adolescent life and hopefully grows into a beautiful, mature adult life. It's a hard journey. Society's not made it easier. The cross currents and the undertows of willfulness and license are all around us. Yes, indeed, I know there must have been a generation in which the structures of the church remained in place while the love of Christ and the proclamation of righteousness by faith was draining away because for many that are the age of my parents and have honorable membership in the Seventh-day Adventist church, it would appear that the one thing that they're after is the destruction of church authority, the authority of our schools and our institutions to place guidance on the spiritual development or the behavioral actions of our children when that very item is what led to multi-generational seeds of sorrow and dysfunction in the days of the judges. How does it work, friends? You want to raise a healthy adult, young adult Christian? you need two things. You need a lot of love. You better be a genuine Christian. You better not be walking through like a whitewashed sepulcher. You better pray. You better read. You better humble yourself before the Lord. You need to be the real thing. But then the other thing you need to remember is that the children are not yours. They're God's. And he has an expectation that he could spend eternity with them, but he's depending on you. And there are restrictions that come along. They're not the primary definer of the home, but they are the protector of the home when love is not enough, or at least the kind of love that would be on the side of positive emotion. Yes, I'm thankful every day for the restrictions my mother placed in my life that helped me put down the carnal tendencies which society is waiting to fertilize. And they want to rob you of your children. It is the restrictions that keep us from mingling with Canaanites, spiritual modern-day 21st century paganism, which desires to fertilize the dark side of a human heart, which, of course, the devil, being as slick as he is, doesn't sow. the, The fruit that he sows leaves the reaping of pain farther down the way. The immediate little scintillation is pleasure. Don't tell your kids otherwise. Satan's temptations always have an immediate dopamine benefit. They always have an immediate pleasure sensory moment on the front side. As a matter of fact, it lingers around long enough until one is trapped. Your teeth fall out if you're a meth addict. You can't control your spending if you're a gambling addict. You can't control your eyes or your thinking if you're a pornography addict. You just keep adding up the list of dysfunction. The socially sinking semblance of freedom is all around us, and the seeds are sown when our kids are young. Love them and teach them the work. Teach them to serve. Keep their lives simple. They're not to be bowing down at every silver screen with the same smile on their face and the same engagement that those digital addictions are designed to create so that the Bible has no interest. Stopping to think is very unpalatable. Meditation on God's person, provision, and precepts has absolutely no interest for them. Yes, there are certain restrictions we place in our children's lives, and since you weren't there for the first two decades of raising my children, I was the one that had to do it. When one of my children will speak up and say, I'm thankful for the way I was raised, it's a decade or two in the waiting, but it's worth it. And I'm appealing to every mom and dad listening to me right now. Love them for Jesus. Recognize them as the chief stewardship of your life. But they are not your children. They belong to God. And he wants them for eternity, and he's depending upon you. She writes, the simple habits of the Hebrews had secured them physical health, but association with the heathen led them to the indulgence of appetite and passion, which gradually lessened physical strength and enfeebled the mental and the moral powers. There you've got the tripartite combination. Take away their physical strength. Take away their mental strength. And in the end, the one score the devil wants the most is take away their power to say no. Take away their power to control themselves. By their sins, the Israelites were separated from God. His strength was removed from them. They could no longer prevail against their enemies. Thus, they were brought into subjection to the very nations that God had directed that they should subdue. Now, I want to say something. The result of avoiding, the result of resisting, the result of following through on the covenant they had with God led them absolutely to insecurity. Oh, it was physical, but it was more than physical. It was familial, it was spiritual, it was relational, it was financial. You talk about food insecurity, they had it. That's why in this story, Gideon's down threshing his fleet near the wine press. You know, that's, that's a spot that's down low. And here we have all kinds of insecurity. When we deviate from a simple obedience to God, we have insecurity. And it would be wonderful if some preacher could come along and put a 21st century bomb on it the problem is, is that some security can only, insecurity can only be remedied when I humble myself and return to the narrow way. There is a call that God is giving to His church in this age, spiritual age of the judges, and it's a call to recognize that a life of ease and pleasure seeking, and there's nothing wrong with comfort and rest, but a life that has been focused on ease and pleasure seeking in instead of a life of a abiding peace that comes through a walk with Christ, that life of ease and pleasure seeking has brought us a type of insecurity because we're not moving forward. God's work is not prioritized. Our families and our homes are not little churches, little sanctuaries. And consequently, we have this nagging lack of assurance, and we'd like somebody to preach some type of message to us that'll take it away. Now, I'm a believer that revival and reformation will be a function of the proper preaching of righteousness by faith. The problem is, is that over the last 50 years, righteousness by faith has too often given a false assurance because it's not called us into a higher level of surrender and commitment to Christ. And lifestyles of the world have been hidden underneath the umbrella of a theological teaching that's not just about a record cleansed, it's about a heart renewed. God is actually coming along to assure us that it's not our performance that that creates the security, but he is calling us to a life of surrender and dedication. In this one life we have to live, time, talent, ability, all of these things influence or to be directed to the forward movement of God's cause. And in that cause, God's going to give us the faith that only he could give us. Take your Bibles and turn, if you would, back to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 6. Insecurity. Nobody wants to live with it. Spiritual insecurity comes when my life is not surrendered and I can't find that peace that comes when I trust and obey. It's not trust and obey to find the way to salvation. It's trust and obey as a result of a divine invitation where salvation is a free gift. Unfortunately, God in that kind of relationship is calling his men and women, and in this 21st century COVID moment, he's calling us back to a new commitment to move the work forward. We are to be taking prisoners of hope. We are to be proclaiming a God you could love. We're to be announcing the advent of our dear Savior. But this insecurity was in the physical experience of Gideon. It's in the spiritual experience of his church, but I want to tell you, if you're afraid your church school is going to close, If you're afraid your church is gonna close, if you're afraid your academy is gonna close, if you're afraid your college and your union's gonna close, I wanna tell you, these are things that bring a different type of potential insecurity. Of course, for some, it's not a big deal. Judges six, verse six, so Israel was brought very low because of Midian, that is the oppressing hand of the Midianite armies, and the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord on account of Midian that the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel and he said to them, now this is not Gideon but this is God following up to make sure there's clarity on how they got to this moment. How is it that Gideon has to be hiding out simply to thresh out enough grain for a loaf of bread? This is how they got here. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I'm the Lord your your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you've not obeyed me. This very same element of idolatry, this very same element of a heart wandering from faithfulness to God is what we're facing in our modern day. And the spiritual insecurity amongst even the systems and the institutions of the Seventh-day Adventist church is a function, as we know, of the epitaph on the experience of the church written in the last lines of the book of Judges. It said, every man did what was right in his own eyes. This perfectly correlates with the arrogance of our age we don't want to be subject to anyone especially if convictions come along and inconvenience is the result we want to march forward as they did after the conquest of previous generations in the days of Gideon enjoying the price paid by previous generations but not putting our shoulder into the harness not leaning on the burdens of the day I don't know where you're at It may be in the name of family that you're not going to use up any margin to be a part of what's going on at the church. That's a form of idolatry in and of itself where we take something good and we actually hijack it to be against something else that's good. When my children were little and there was a work bee, they were with me. At the prayer meeting, they were with me. Whether it's it's their vocabulary or their academic ability or the benefit to their social person, all of that interacting with other generations, because there were woefully few children at those prayer meetings too. Those children came away with a legacy that's benefiting them. It can't be deconstructed in social terms right now. It can't be parsed out in where the roots are. The specific roots of benefit to them are. But when we get to heaven, Jesus can take as much time as they want to unpack their childhood and show how these moments added up to this experience in their adult life. Yes, by faith, we believe that God's work comes first, that the education of God for our families comes first. These were the things that were left behind by the generation of Gideon. These are the things that have been left behind in the last generation or two in the American religious experience, even inside the Seventh-day Adventist church. And God's calling us now to recognize that the insecurity of our age is partially attributable to the deviation, the lack of fidelity, to the advancement of His cause. There's nothing like a good battle there's nothing like a spiritual showdown to call you into a posture of prayer to build your faith and show you the evidence there's a living God. But when the church doesn't move, when it's just swept along with the currents, you can be sure there's destruction in the future. God is calling us today to recommit ourselves to a life that is empowered. The, the promise that God is, if you'll return to me, I'll return to you, if you'll seek me with all your heart. The deliverance of Israel was to be preceded by a solemn protest against the worship of Baal. Take your Bibles and let's look at the story. Gideon's visited by the angel. He wants a sign. So you're afraid. You're all right. You're in good company. Gideon was afraid too. He's fearful. He's the last of Joash's sons. All the rest have died fighting enemies like the Midianites. An angel appears. Gideon wants some kind of sign that this is more than an imagination or a dream. He says, all right, I'll give you one. Gideon prepares a sacrifice. He brings out a goat that he's prepared. He brings out broth. The angel says, set them on a rock. Fire comes up out of the rock and consumes them. You see, God is more than willing to assure us as we take a step away from fear in the direction of faith that He is willing to come down and strengthen us and encounter us. But this is not it. When This is not the end. When Gideon has this divine encounter, the Bible says the very same night, God brings him a test. Verse 25 of Judges chapter 6. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bowl and a second bowl, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, and cut down the Asherah that's beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of this stronghold in an orderly manner, and take a second bowl as an offering, a burnt offering, with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took the men, ten men of his servants, and did his father's as the Lord had spoken to him, and because he was too afraid of his father's household and the men of the city to do it by day, he did it by night. God will take you where you're at. Gideon's too afraid to let everybody gather around and watch. His mind logically probably says, I'll be resisted. I might even be stoned. But Gideon recognizes and illustrates for us where the first battles begin. The first battle to move forward starts in your own heart. What fears reside there? What chapters of doubt are lurking in the recesses of your mind and the past of your spiritual journey? Was God not able to tell you no in answer to that prayer? And thus your faith is doubtful? Or can God be big enough to say, no, sometimes I tell you yes, and sometimes I tell you no. The first battle to be fought is between you and God. Will you surrender to the nail-pierced hands? Once the answer to that is yes, God says, all right, the next place the battle is going to be fought, before I send you to the Midianites, I'm sending you to your own household. What father and mother listening to me knows that there's, there are idols set up to the, the gods of this age. They may be in a pocket. They may be on a lap. They may be on an inter, in an entertainment console. God is actually calling us to recognize like the church, the, the growing, the beautifully developing church in Ephesus and take out all of those magic writings, 50,000 drachmas worth, and burn them in the street as a testimony that the old is going away. We're going to put up a few firewalls. I was visiting with somebody recently who thought that firewalls were passe, they didn't work. No, they won't work if the human heart is completely set on doing wrong. But once the heart is touched and the gift of the Holy Spirit through of, of the gift of repentance through the Holy Spirit is given. Once God's allowed to put some enmity inside of us to where it's it's more than just human effort saying no, no, no. We actually do erect protections. We do it for cities. We do it on bridges. How many of you would like to drive across, uh, let's pick a bridge, the Golden Gate Bridge with no railings? Dr. Dobson, when he was still leading out and focusing on the family, said, for children, it can be illustrated like this, and it works for adults, too, as children of God. Let them go out on an 11-story balcony of a skyscraper, or let's say the 100th story. You've got a nice solid railing tied into the building. What will the kids do? They'll wander out there, they'll grab onto the rails and they'll lean over and look down. You put the same sheet of concrete hanging four feet out of the side of a steel structure, a thousand feet off the ground, and you take away the railing and you open the sliding glass door and you shove your child out onto that piece of pavement hanging precariously off the side of that amazing piece of architecture. And what do they do? They back themselves up against the wall. Yes, railings, bulwarks, protections, walls. They have a place. They create a measure of security. In our homes, we ought to raise a few firewalls up. They ought not to simply be metaphors that are used in regards to internet connections. They ought to be things that are woven into our schedule, our priorities, our behavior, habit patterns in our home, in our churches, and in our schools. God's calling us to stop and say, What protects our relationship and what wars against it? Indeed, Gideon's first commitment was to tear down an altar of Baal that his father had erected. It wasn't just his father's worship place, it was the worship place of all of the city. And when a man or woman of God, a mighty man or woman of valor stands up and she realizes that the first convictions and the first battles God's leading to are inside the home, they better be a very prayerful and wise person. But if they refuse to act out of cowardice, Woe be unto them as they have to work their way through the rock-strewn path that leads to self-destruction. They're not on the king's highway. They're walking with the doubts of regret and wonder as to what would have happened if they would have done the right thing. No, Gideon is told, your first battle is gonna go up against the city and up against your dad. The amazing thing is, is that even though Gideon's afraid, he still does it. Maybe not the way God wanted him to, but nonetheless, it's done. And when they hook those two oxen onto that mighty statue of Baal and they pull it over and it falls into the dust of Joash's front yard. There must have been a thrill of exhilaration in Gideon's heart because when you do what's right, amazing burdens fly off your shoulder and amazing confidence comes into your soul. It doesn't solve the fear problem forever. That creeps back over and over again just as we see in the story of Gideon. But the amazing thing is, A victory in your home will have wonderful, sometimes maybe not anticipated consequences. In this case, Joash who was once faithful to God rises up when all the men of the city come and say, Gideon did it? Gideon's going to die. Joash rises up and says, look if Baal can't protect himself, what kind of God is he? And if you're going to deal with my son, you're going to deal with me first. Gideon's first spiritual victories are in his own heart. Gideon's second line of victory is in his own home. And when Joash becomes a partner with him in allegiance to Christ, imagine what this must have done for him. Oh, you might meet resistance. You might have a teenager whose habits and desires have been so cultivated by such lax parenting and discipleship that they're not going to be your friend. They're not going to rise up and call you blessed. That's why you better be awfully close to your spouse. That's why you better be awfully wise about implementation. You created the habit. You're going to have to go patiently and wisely to undo it. And you might not be appreciated for many years. It might take a decade or two before somebody says to you, I'm so glad for the way you raised me. Listen, when God starts to move in a person's heart, he starts knocking down the obstacles inside. And then he says, all right, we're going to go beyond this. We're going to enlarge the circle. Joash becomes a partner in the deliverance of Israel. But Gideon still has fear. Verse 36 Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me, as you've spoken, behold, I'll put a fleece of wool out on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only, and it's dry all around, then I'll know that you will deliver Israel through me, as you've spoken. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece. He drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Now, I don't know how big this fleece was, but I do know this. God made it a point so that Gideon need not doubt. And so when he walked out through the dry grass and he grabbed on to the piece of fleece, it was as if he had a sense that I'm going to record what the outcome is because there was a bowl nearby by intention or accident, and he squeezed the water into the bowl, and it was probably a little bit more than he anticipated. But he still was doubting. Then Gideon said, Don't let your anger burn with me, God, verse 39, but let me speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and the dew was on the ground. Here in America, you get a cool summer morning where there's a lot of moisture in the air. If you walk out in your tennis shoes, it won't be long until your feet are sopping wet. I can assure you that whether it was a sandal or a leather shoe, whatever it was that Gideon was wearing, when he woke up that morning and went out to his test, his feet were sopping wet. But when he made it up to the fleece, it was as dry as the hills of Gilboa. Now, I need you to know something very important. God does not give the fleece as an indication of what he is to do. He gives the fleece as a confirmation what's the difference? The difference is is that long before you need a sign, you need to understand how to hear the voice of God. God is going to make his will clear to you. There will be a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Moses will write in the book of Deuteronomy that the word is not far away, the word is near, near to your heart. God says, be still and know that I am God. When God comes to affirming in signs, it's not to alleviate the prayer journey of deciding what God is saying, it's to nerve us to do what He knows He's already said. Don't ask God to take away the journey of calling out to Him for inner assurance, the inner witness, but once you sense you know where He's leading, feel free to say, God, this is what I think you're saying, would you mind confirming it? God wants us to learn to hear his voice. The journey with Abraham is the journey for all of us. God was willing to give Gideon multiple signs, but they were not to replace the relational dynamic of communing with him to know what he was saying. We're up to three signs so far. It's the sign of the rock which fire comes out to consume the offering with the angelic encounter. Now it's two fleeces, but it's gonna be more. Gideon collects 32,000 men. The trumpet sounds. They rally from different parts of the nation. Verse 3 of chapter 7. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So of his 32,000 he gathered, 22,000 said, That's me, I'm afraid. It's interesting, in the book of Deuteronomy, God not only made provision, For those that have planted vineyards and not eaten the fruit of them or gotten married and not enjoyed that year of time with their wife, God actually made a provision that at the beginning of every battle, they were to announce, if you're afraid, you don't have to come with us. This is not unique to Gideon's moment. Gideon announces it. The spirit of prophecy tells us he's afraid to announce it because he's afraid that what happened would have happened. We're like that too, aren't we? We don't want to talk to God about something because we're afraid he's actually going to do what we don't want him to do. And and we can can do our own little uh, calculating to sense it isn't going to turn out good. More than two-thirds of his army, which was going up against an army that was described like the sand of the sea, melts away into the Judean countryside. Let the ones that are afraid go home. Verse 4, then the Lord said to them, the people are still too many bring them down to the water and I'll test them. I'll do it for you. Gideon didn't know how to distinguish those who were yet still afraid and those who weren't, but God did. Therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you and he shall go with you, but every one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So they brought him down to the water. And this was the test. The ones who don't really break cadence and get their water and keep moving to the battle, those are the ones that really aren't afraid. And everybody that kneels down and takes a leisurely drink, there's things hiding in their heart. They're not going with you. It's interesting that of those 300 chosen men, Patriarchs and Prophets writes this, they not only possess courage and self-control, they were men of faith. They had not defiled themselves with idolatry. God could direct them and through them he could work deliverance in, in Israel. These were like Elijah's 700 that were proclaimed when he was at Mount Horeb complaining that God wasn't paying attention and that Jezebel was going to get him. These are the, like the 700 when Elijah, after the, the quake and the fire and the wind, comes out to the front of the cave and God says, look, I've got people you don't know anything about. These 300 men had not come out to the citywide feast and proclamations of the God, the supposed God, Baal. These men had been faithful all the way along and God was strengthening their faith and they knew God was leading. It was time that somebody rose up and said, give us back our inheritance. Give us back our faith in God. Give us back our security. These 300 men were all that God needed. But you need to understand something. This journey was either going to be a suicide mission or a smashing success. And if you think those 300 men hadn't thought about that, you better think again. You don't come down off the hills surrounding a host of tens of thousands with 300 men and not realize if something doesn't happen in the first 30 seconds of this encounter, we're dead men. Suicide or success, God sets things up like this. As a matter of fact, it's completely architected by God. And if you think in your life he isn't going to bring you up to a place where you have to put your feet in the water, think again. The one thing God wants to give us is a growing faith. As a matter of fact, Ellen White will write, by the repeated manifestations of his power in behalf of Israel, that's you, that's me, I want repeated manifestations of his power. God would lead them to have faith in him. You see, faith is not your creation. Faith is not something you summon up. Faith is something you acquire as you surrender and obey and every crisis turns into a conquest of victory because God showed up and he said, I told you so. All heaven, she writes, awaits our demand upon its wisdom and strength. If you are prayerful and humble and surrendered to God, don't worry about presumption. If you really think you're out on a limb, find somebody that'll tell you the truth. But most of us instead are hunkered down, hiding out in our little caves, man caves maybe, enjoying life, and then we end up being exceptionally knee-knocking when it comes to taking a step of faith. Not only does it look impossible, but we don't even want to. I want to be amongst one of those 300 men. Now, there's one more moment when God steps in and takes care of Gideon because he's still afraid. Fourth time, fourth night. Chapter 7, verse 10. They're now on the hillsides around the camp of Midian, all 300 of them. Now, the same night, verse 9, it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you're afraid, that's a powerful voice, God recognizes our fragility. If you're afraid to go down, go with Purah, your servant, down to the camp, and you'll hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened that you may go down to the camp. And interestingly enough, the author of the book of Judges tells us that Gideon was afraid. How do we know? Because he went down with Purah. And this is what happens. They come down off the hillside. They're walking up toward this amazing, massive, ocean-like encampment of men. They get up near one of the tents, and they hear a dialogue between two Midianite soldiers. And one of them says, you know, I had a dream. And in this dream, a barley loaf came tumbling into our camp, and it knocked down my tent. And the commentary on the dream is this. That's Gideon. God's given him... Given us into His hands. Gideon recognized, Ellen White says, the voice of God speaking to him through those Midianites strangers, and returning to the few men under his command, he said, "Arise, for the Lord have delivered you into the, delivered them the hand into our hands, the Midianites." Now, I had an experience like this recently that I want to explain to you, so that you can see how it works in the 21st century. About two weeks ago, the general contractor for the neighbor-to-neighbor building found out that things were going to have to come to a halt. We had a little crisis. Too much project, too little money. We'd had a delay on getting the power in there, and it had brought us to an exact moment where God was going to call us out to him, bring us out into a moment of prayer. And so with not enough money to keep meeting expenses, including paying a mortgage, paying a loan note, construction was going to come to a close. The question for all of us was, should construction remain closed? And what had to happen was a prayerful processing of different ideas, but this is how God started to show us what we needed to do. Our general contractor, without telling I mean, I might have known, but our general contractor came over to this church, went downstairs to talk to another contractor that worked for him that was not a seven-day Adventist. Without any solicitation for subject discussion about neighbor to neighbor, the contractor in the basement painting says, so what's going on at neighbor to neighbor? And interestingly, in the mind of our general contractor, maybe he's saying, well, funny you should ask. And he explained to the painting contractor that the program was put on hold, the building was not going forward. Now this is within minutes, maybe hours, of finding out that the foot is on the brake, progress is not going to happen. And the painting contractor, who is not a Seventh-day Adventist, I don't know if he proclaims Christianity or not, said, well that can't happen, I'll paint the building for free, Now, do you hear the overtones of a Midianite soldier's discussion in that uncalculated, unstructured, unstrategized encounter? Later that day, the same general contractor calls up another general contractor and is explaining that we got to put this on hold. The wife can overhear the conversation, and she says to her husband, who has a very large contract, In this, she says, you'll do it for free. Give me more wives like that, by the way. And then our general contractor himself, not having revealed this to hardly anyone, is thinking to himself, well, maybe I'll give up my contractor's fee for this to go. Now, what am I as a pastor supposed to take from all of these conversations that have made their way back to me? Number one, we knew that the money that was raised by the village church to get the loan was not to get the loan, only not to get the loan. And number two, what you could begin to see in these conversations that were making their way back to me is the voice of God speaking through these different men who said, this work must go Forward. And so, are we surprised that in a period of eight days, we raise over $40,000, specifically most of it to take care of the loan so that nobody needs to be afraid that while the thrift store may not open as rapidly as we want, we can't pay the note? The note can be paid because God moved on the heart of His people, but we've got to learn to hear the voice of God in dialogue and circumstance. We've got to see through the eyes of faith. We have to believe that forward is the direction to go and conquest. Is the guarantee. Amen. We are not on a journey by ourselves. May our lives be surrendered to God and may we trust Him to do what only He could do. Ellen White will say in Patriarchs and Prophets the most complete system that men have ever devised, apart from the power and wisdom of God, will prove a failure, while the most unpromising methods will succeed when divinely appointed and entered upon with humility and faith. Trust in God and obedience to his will are as essential to the Christian in spiritual warfare as to Gideon and Joshua in their battles with the Canaanites. So where are we today, friends? I'm here to tell you in much of the Western world the idea of conquest is passé. The idea that the proclamation of God's word will do any good is suspect. It's been critiqued, even academically and sociologically critiqued. Some will go so far to say that it doesn't work. But I'll come back to what Dr. Panias said in our Sabbath school mission segment. Little prayer, little power. Quoting from Elder Pearson, a former general conference president, much prayer, much power. It might be that we find ourselves hiding like Saul did in the caves in the mountains because of the Philistines. It might be that it's time to come out and venture something in God's name. Let's think about Jonathan as we close. Do you have one good friend in your life who will stand by your side and say, this can be done and this ought to be done? I think about Jonathan at the base of that cliff. He turned to his armor bearer and he said, you know what? Let's ask God for a sign. But let's have an interest in conquest. And we're going to call out to those Philistines at the top of the hill. And if they say, come on up, we'll deal with you, then we're going up. If he would have turned to that armor bearer, and that armor bearer would have had fear in his eyes because there was fear in his heart. And that armor-bearer would have said, oh, I don't know about this, sir, Jonathan. Nothing would have happened. But like attracts like. And a journey of faith will attract and increase faith in the hearts of those in your social circle. And when Jonathan looked at his armor-bearer, and what do you say, let's put God to the test, the armor-bearer looked straight back into his eyes because he had been many a battle before with his fighting partner, Jonathan. He said, you know what, sir? If they call us up, I'm good to go. Let's go. Listen, somebody's going to have to realize that it's not suicide, but it's success when we follow God. It's not bankruptcy, but it's the provision of heaven. It's the gusher. It's the opening of the resources of God. Heaven is waiting our demand upon its wisdom and its strength. And God is exceedingly able, Paul will write, to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. Yes, friends, the battle before us is going to start in our own heart. It's going to move into our own homes. Idols are going to have to be torn down. People are going to be afraid. We're going to need an awful lot of wisdom and an awful lot of patience. But I'll tell you the one thing we can't have. We cannot have fear commanding the field. And whether we take little steps or bigger steps based on the providence of God, we ought to be moving forward. We ought to realize that the trumpet of heaven is going to sound and God's going to call his forces to him. We ought to realize there's a shaking coming when the fearful are going to be left behind. And we ought to be asking God, give us that litany, give us that journal full of faithful circumstances where you come down and provide as we follow your lead and grow our faith. We're in a position in time in which we need some mighty men and women of valor. We're not wanting to prepare our kids for apostasy. And by the way, if some of your children aren't walking the way you raised them to walk, You keep praying there's a mighty Holy Spirit that's working when you can't work and he's in places you can't be. Don't take all the credit when they turn out good and take all the blame when it doesn't turn out the way you want it to. The battle's not over. The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out and many who have wandered away are going to come back. That's the promise. Friends, God's calling us to make new commitments. We're living in the age of the judges. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. But God's calling us back to a simple faith and a simple obedience. He's calling us to abandon a love of ease and pleasure. He's calling us to let him speak truth and whatever an idol is, it is. Doesn't matter whether it's in your heart or your kids. He's calling us to reshape our own hearts as a sanctuary for his presence, our own homes, our own churches, and our own schools. Yes, God's calling us forward to the finish. There's gonna be a mighty showdown. And all God wants is people that have let him lead them one step of the way, one step higher on the mountain of faith and courage. He's calling you. He's calling me. He's calling Christians to be committed to the cause that will liberate souls for eternity. Let's raise our children to be with Jesus forever. Let's warn our society. Let's live a sweet, preserving experience for our common culture. And if we pay a price, it's okay. Jesus paid a price before us, and he'll walk right by our side. I'm inviting you, make a commitment while we sing this closing hymn.